Well, if uh, you've been with us over uh, recent weeks, because you've joined us in person or online, you'll know that we're making our way through part two of a little teaching series we've entitled Devotement, uh, a word we made up, a fusion of the word devoted and commitment. Uh, Put those two words together and you get the word uh, devotement, a ridiculous word, but actually it conveys so much of what we're called to be and who we're called to be, particularly as followers of Jesus. Now, my guess is that some of us, and I can tell the ones who aren't and the ones who aren't, are members of gyms. Uh, Some of us uh, will be members of social clubs. Some of us may be members of diet clubs. Others of us, members of special interest groups. Some of us are members of all of the above, all at the same time. We'll get your head around that one. But I wonder when you think about those clubs, how deep the sense of community is in those different clubs and societies as you meet people week by week? How much do you really know the people that you gather with? How much do you really share your life and your experience with them? Well, a couple of decades ago, and it was a couple of decades ago, as you can tell by my current physique, I used to go to circuit training classes where there was an instructor, a man who used to shout a lot. That's my primary memory of it. And he always went on about, in his shouting about what a tight-knit community of people we are. Come on, work it. Keep going. More repetitions. We're really good in this together was the kind of stuff he used to say. And of course, in many ways, he was right. We were a, a tight-knit community. You see, when you share sweat with other people, you really bond. It's a sign of your closeness. And we were a diverse bunch. We were people made up of all sorts of shapes and sizes, quite literally. We had a shared passion together. Our passion was to get fitter or to become more finely toned. And we had committed ourselves as well to his leadership, to be tortured by this same man week after week after week. We were a community. And misery loves community, uh, doesn't it? But, you know, here's the thing. After each of the sessions, once we were all done complaining about what a sadistic, lycra-wearing individual the instructor was, we very quickly ran out of conversation, and then we just melted away, only to come back again the next week and do exactly the same all again. Sweat, complain, go home. Sweat, complain, go home. And from that perspective, it was actually incredibly shallow. Now, I guess if we're not careful, our church experience can have all the same ingredients, can't it? We gather, we share an experience together, we talk about what a tight-knit community we are together, we moan about the leader afterwards over coffee, (laughs) don't deny it, we quickly run out of other things to talk about, and then we go home only to go around the same loop again the following week. And in our scripture reading this morning, we hear the challenge to be deeper. We hear a challenge as a church community to to be less superficial. We hear a challenge to be an unforced community that experiences the grace of God deeply. You see, in the church, we ought to go deeper. Christian togetherness finds itself in a shared worldview, doesn't it, which is centered upon Jesus. Our togetherness as fellow believers is all about shared goals. It's all about worshipping and proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And ultimately, as followers of Jesus together, we have a shared hope. It's an eternal hope that's found only in Christ himself. But for that to become even more our reality, it takes a commitment. And it's a commitment which is upward, inward, 
and outward. Did I look like an air hostess just then? You know, our scripture reading today is probably uh, well known. I suspect this won't be the first sermon you've ever heard on this text. And our reading gives us a snapshot, and it is only a snapshot of the early church, and it's a healthy local church a few days after the day of Pentecost. But I want to underline something that's really crucial about this church that often we miss. It was not a perfect church. It was not a perfect church. How do I know that? Because it was made up of people. You've probably heard the the saying, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. It's true today, and it was especially true in in the early church. The biggest room in anyone's house is the room for improvement. We're all sinners. And sadly, tragically, oftentimes, maybe especially so, that sin turns up at church. In fact, the deeper that you read into the book of Acts, the more you uncover all the problems that they were dealing with as a church. It was a messy place to exist. But God, but God was at work powerfully in their midst, despite their challenges and the changing environment that was around them and even within them. This morning in our reading, we see a church that's growing rapidly, spiritually and numerically, and we see a church that's going from strength to strength. Now, this morning, we're going to pick up the story from the place where we ended last weekend. Peter has just preached the sermon of his life. 3,000 people have come to faith. Peter's explained what's just happened on the day of Pentecost. And then in Acts, Luke goes on to give us this description of a church which is thoroughly committed upward, inwardly, and outwardly um, as well. It was a gathering, growing, and a going church. So if you've got a Bible, turn to uh, Acts chapter 2. I'm actually going to read from a bit uh, from where we left off last week from verse 40. It says, with many other words, Peter warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who was in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, let me give you my sermon in a sentence this morning, just in case you drift off to sleep in all that I'm about to say. There's good biblical precedent for sleeping uh, with long sermons. Not that this one's particularly long. Just be careful not to fall out of any windows. Some of you don't get that. Keep reading on in Acts. Here's my sermon in a sentence. A healthy church is marked by a continual ongoing commitment to Christ, that's upreach, to his people, which is inreach, and to Christ's work in the world, which is outreach. You may now sleep. So firstly, upreach. Can you imagine for a moment what those church leaders' meetings must have been like in those days after Pentecost? Peter, would you please share with us what's been happening in this week in our church? Well, about 3,000 people came to faith last weekend. 
and Peter, how exactly are you planning to disciple these individuals? Well, it's okay, because I started 300 brand new home groups in just the last week. <laughs> Peter, who exactly is leading these home groups? It's okay. Mr. and Mrs. Jones, who became Christians two weeks ago, they're leading one. And then there's Mr. and Mrs. Bloggs. They've been loving Jesus now for nine days, and they're going to be leading another one of these. Can you imagine the situation in the early church? It was chaos. 3,000 people coming to faith would be every single church pastor's dream. But it is also the stuff of nightmares. Linda said... uh, Pray for a revival, but be warned, it creates an awful lot of work, and isn't that true? We should remind ourselves, too, that this was a a diverse group of people. They were converts who'd come from many different locations and from lots of different backgrounds. Now, a fair few of them would have had a a Jewish heritage, and many of them would have had a, a sound biblical background, but none of that biblical heritage was rooted in the person and the ministry of Jesus. In so many ways, lots of those people would have been ignorant to the person of Christ. What we discover is a bunch of Old Testament believers who have been converted into a New Testament world. And these apostles had a massive job on their hands to to ground these people in their faith before they returned home to the countries they came from or before they carried on their newfound Christian faith in and around Jerusalem. And with so much going on, with so many needs to meet, uh, uh, needs to meet yeah, the, the early church had to quickly become experts in prioritization. And their number one priority was to do whatever it took to ensure that these new Christians were committed to Christ. Christ at the center, Christ at the core, Christ injected into their very DNA. You see, as the apostles had discovered for themselves, faith without Christ is like salt without pepper. It's like chips without fish. It's like macaroni without cheese. Do you want me to carry on or do you get the idea? And do you know what I really love about this scripture reading this morning is Luke reveals for us what the early church emphasized. We get to see what the early church thought was really important, and it's incredibly simple. It was about a commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you know, we face a similar challenge today as we wrestle with what's most important for us as a church. And as we wrestle with the same question, we should always come back to the same answer. If it's not about Jesus, then it's about the wrong thing. And you know, I love that so much. Uh, You can imagine so many of these people have been caught up in Old Testament practices of priests and sacrifices and Levitical laws. It was all so complicated. And then Jesus comes along and suddenly worship becomes simple. It's just all about him. When Jesus is at the center of our lives, everything else falls into place. Look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. That's what my granny used to say. Now that's really good advice when we're facing a financial crisis. But it's also true in our walk of faith. When we look after the most important thing, everything else just falls into place. A couple of months ago, something very strange started to grow outside the entrance of our church offices. It's still there. You can go and check it out afterwards if you want to. Now, initially when we saw this, Kay got really excited because she thought it was a cannabis plant. (laughs) Well, alas, it was not. But it would appear that we do have something strange growing there. It's a tomato plant. Here it is. Here's a picture of it. 
Now, whenever you put a picture into PowerPoint, you get this little graphic pop-up describing what uh, Microsoft thinks it is. And it described this as a white fire hydrant attached to a brick wall. <laughs> I would not like to take what's coming out of that pipe on any fire, thank you very much. Now, our plant clearly is less profitable than a, a cannabis plant, but it's weird nonetheless given its location. What's weird about it is nobody intentionally planted it there. It's just grown. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a grace gift. But if you look at that plant now, I think it's fair to say that it's struggling. Why? Because we've neglected it. And you know, our tomato plant is the perfect illustration of what can happen when we come to faith in Christ. Somehow, by God's amazing grace, and it is by his amazing grace, isn't it? We find ourselves in relationship with him, and yet if we don't take steps to nurture what he's planted within us, then it will become fruitless and eventually it will die. The CBC tomato plant would have flourished if we'd watered it. It would have flourished if we'd fed it and staked it up and given it some TLC. Within a week, that plant will be dead unless someone goes and rescues it. But the early church weren't content to allow what Jesus had done as an act of pure grace to, to wither or to be disregarded. What we read about is a bunch of disciples who were taking intentional steps that were going to be a stimulus for their growth in their upward commitment towards their God. Verse 42 says they devoted, literally translated, it means they were continually devoting and devoting again and again and again and again themselves to the apostles' teaching. Sound doctrine was their number one priority to ensure that their lives were going to be fruitful. Because when you know sound doctrine, or you can correctly interpret scripture, you know how to do everything else that's on the list that Luke describes up to verse 47. You see, if you don't know sound doctrine and you don't know how to interpret the things of God, then you won't know how to live the Christian life. And eventually that Christian life will wither and ultimately it will die. You know, we live in, in a world, don't we, where the church, even the evangelical church, which used to bang the drums so loudly about sound doctrine and good Bible teaching, has gotten to the place where we dismiss that as being part of our gatherings. You know, if we're not careful, we can end up becoming the very thing that the early church refused to become which was a church who were just constantly chasing after an emotional experience. The next high on their journey with God, or a church that's driven more by their feelings um, than by their thoughts. You see, genuine commitment to Christ is about more than having a quiver in your liver when you sing worship songs. I came across an academic paper this week, which was written by a professor who admittedly is touring around America, but I think this is true of the UK as well, who went and visited loads of growing um, and large churches. And he came up with a list of 15 top characteristics of growing churches. And biblical teaching was absent from his list. Now, I want to suggest that's concerning. Now, you could go to some of these churches, and what they'll say to you is, look at us, we're growing. We're proclaiming Jesus, so don't bother with all of that doctrine and all that complicated theology that confuses people. But here's the thing. A Jehovah's Witness can give you Jesus too, but how do you know whether the Jesus that's being given is the real thing or the fake thing? There's only one way, and that's by sound biblical teaching and doctrine. 
You see, as you turn into the the later pages of the New Testament from where we're looking today, you find the Apostle Paul writing to younger pastors like Timothy and Titus, and you find him again and again emphasizing the need for sound doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, he says, devote yourself. Devote yourself to the public teaching or reading of Scripture. Titus 1, 9, hold firmly to the trustworthy message that's been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine. Hold firmly. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul couldn't put it any more strongly. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. What's the charge? To preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage, and with great patience and careful instruction. For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. These are intentional things that Paul is commanding these young preachers to do, to devote themselves, to hold firmly, to to preach the word. You see, sound Doctrine and sound Bible teaching isn't our enemy, it's actually our friend. And the early church knew it, so they prioritized it. You see, feeding yourself spiritually without the Word of God is but like believing you can eat every single meal at McDonald's and you'll still maintain a well-balanced diet. You see, McDonald's might well fill you up, but it won't make you healthier, that's a given. But what we notice here in all that Luke describes of the early church is he doesn't stop at sound doctrine in his description of the early church. He says, look, their sound doctrine, their number one priority was that, is put into practice by their sharing together, by their gathering around the Lord's table for communion through the sacrament of baptism. It's put into practice through prayer and through corporate worship, through generous sharing together, as we heard in that text. And the point that's being made here is all of these things were their common and their continual expression of their devotion to Christ. Worship of Jesus, by which I mean more than just singing songs, kind of oozed out of the cracks of their everyday lives, didn't it? You know, it's so interesting to me that 3,000 people came to faith immediately after Peter had soundly preached his heart out didn't happen before or as a direct result of the day of Pentecost. It happened after Peter had explained all that was going on on the day of Pentecost. You see, all of this wasn't as a result of Peter's um, great sense of humor or because he had an amazing band or a slick marketing campaign. I mean, maybe there's a place for all of that in our worship. It wasn't even as a result of the Holy Spirit experience they'd so powerfully had on Pentecost. All of that was important. But Jesus was drawing people to himself through a body of believers who were compelled to worship in the fullest sense of that word in response to the gospel that had been soundly communicated and understood. The challenge, to do whatever it takes to avoid being a wilting, fruitless plant that would flourish if only it were nurtured with that upward commitment to encounter God through Scripture, through prayer, through baptism, through corporate worship, through generously sharing with each other. Firstly, don't worry, they get much quicker because that was the most important one, upreach. Secondly, inreach. 
I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say something like, do you know, I love Jesus, but I can't stand his church. Have you ever heard someone say that? Ever said it or thought it yourself? I know I have. And you know, at least on the surface, I, I know what they mean. Other Christians can be incredibly annoying. I know a few of them. None of them are here. Nor were they at the 9.15 service, so I should quickly cover that. You know, the really frustrating thing is that those annoying people are the very same people you and I get to share eternity with. And eternity is a long time, isn't it, to spend with people who annoy you. And yet the reality is, is those people should annoy you because the, the church is made up of hypocrites, isn't it? It's made up of imperfect people who look strangely like you and me, and we're going to rub each other up the wrong way. You know, Jesus knows the worst about you. Nevertheless, he's the one who loves you the most. You'll never be more loved by Christ than you are loved right now. An amazing thought. Do you know what? Yes, the church, universal, local, even CBC has made its mistakes, and we've been unbalanced sometimes. Maybe even on occasions we've been unbiblical, but thankfully, by God's grace, that's not our permanent state. And you know, the early church would have none of this church-bashing, church-hating nonsense because it was so clear from their practice that if you'd become committed to Christ, then by default, your default state was that you would also be committed to outworking that commitment to Christ through the local church. If you're committed to Christ, you'll be committed to his body. You become an inescapable part of a family, of brothers and sisters around the world and in a local context. And do you know what? When I think back to all the people, those good people who shared the gospel with me all those years ago, nobody ever told me that. No one ever said to me, do you know what, Chris? If you trust Jesus, you're going to end up with loads of really annoying brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to drive you nuts. And by the way, Chris, you're going to drive them nuts as well. No one ever told me that. But we cannot be devoted to the head who is Christ and at the same time cut ourselves off from the body, which is the church. That would be like a young man saying to his date, do you know what, I love your face, but your body is gross. That relationship would come to a quick end. The author and the pastor, Eugene Peterson, he's got a brilliant quote on uh, the imperfections and weaknesses of the church. It's a long quote, but I think it's so good. He says this, when Christian believers gather together, everything that can go wrong eventually will. Isn't that encouraging? Outsiders will notice this and they'll conclude that religion is but an empty promise, a hypocritical gathering of the pious. But we insiders see it differently though. Just as a hospital collects the sick under one roof, the church collects sinners. Many of the people outside the hospital are just as sick as those inside, but their illnesses are undiagnosed, disguised and untreated. So it is with sinners outside the church. Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. He forgot to put in brackets, apart from Christchurch Baptist Church in there. <laughs> Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. But rather, they're places where human misbehavior and sin is brought together to be dealt with. Of course, the death rate at a hospital is higher than an elementary school. It's where the sick gather. No one should be surprised to find sin in a group of sinners coming together to deal with the problem of sin. Isn't that a great quote? 
And isn't it so true of the church that you and I experience? And you know, here we have an early church who loved each other despite their imperfections, despite the fact that at least on occasions, they drove each other nuts. But listen to Luke's description of their inward commitment from verse 44. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Every day they continued to meet together together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with sincere hearts. You see, in these verses, we're having a description of an inward generosity, which is just a downstream from their commitment to Christ. That's all it is. They've committed to Christ, and all this is just an outworking of what that commitment looks like. We have a word, don't we, of philanthropy, that's said right, where wealthy people give their their money away to the poor. We, We know how to define that. But we don't have a word for when poor people give their money away too. And that's what was going on here in the church. Everyone was committed to this sharing and this this generous uh, attitude and lifestyle together. Why could they do that? Because it's so much easier to let go of your possessions and your finances and your talents when you realize that it's God who's given it to you in the first place. Upreach, a commitment to God. In reach, a commitment to others, a call to sharing in faith together, a call to generous serving and sharing. And then finally, which is really quick, outreach. You know, what's so interesting about this description of the church, I don't know if you spotted this, is nowhere does it say that the church engaged in evangelism. Nowhere. At least not evangelism as we perhaps have come to understand it. Now hear me here, I'm not suggesting that we should stop evangelism and stop trying to reach out to those who don't yet know Christ. We should do evangelism. That's clear from all that goes on in the rest of Acts. But what's so clear here from Luke's description is that this combination of outreach, commitment to God, that then became inreach, which was just the outworking of their commitment to God, was organically organizing their outreach. It was just naturally happening. There's something about the way they were doing life together with God and life with each other that was just simply attractive to those around who didn't yet have a faith. So verse 47, they did all these things, upward and inward, and God added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow, they already had a problem with 3,000 people. Thank you, Lord. Give me some more. Why did the more come? Because here is a church who are so upwardly committed to Christ and so inwardly committed to each other that their evangelism, their outreach was just naturally happening as people saw that. We're committed upwardly as a church here at CBC to worshipping God. Why? Because Christ has done some amazing stuff for us. As a church, we're going to continue being committed to inwardly loving each other. Why? Because of all that Christ has done for us. And we as a church will continue to be committed to reaching others in our outreach of the lost. Why? because of all that Jesus has done for us. You see the non-negotiable here, it's Christ. Christ at the center, Christ at the core, Christ even more in our DNA. That's my prayer over me, and maybe it's your prayer over yourself. It's the invitation. The invitation to be so thoroughly, upwardly committed to God that there can only be fruit in your life. An invitation to be part of a church community where our inreach is so strong that it's attractive to the world around us and loving to each other. 
an invitation to join in with outreach, to not selfishly hold on to the good news that we've discovered, but to, to lavishly and generously share it with the world that's around us. If we're going to do all of those things, our walk with Jesus must be strong and based on really sound doctrine. I wonder, how's your walk with Christ today? I want to invite our musicians to come and join us. We're going to uh, share in a song together, which is actually a prayer, and we're going to use this as our prayer in response. And to begin with, I want to encourage you to stay seated, to remain prayerful, as the musicians sing over us this song. And I'm going to invite you to join in when we're invited to join in. As we stand together and we're going to sing a song that says, Jesus, I believe in you. A song that says, Jesus, I belong to you because you've paid the great price so that I can be in relationship with you. Jesus, you're the reason that I live, the reason that I sing with all that I am. And then a refrain that reminds us that we're invited to worship. Let's stay seated as our musicians minister to us to begin with.
worship. I will worship. I will worship you. I will worship. Your word. 
Day and night. Night and day, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. Let's have a picture of the queen just taking off her crown and laying it before the king of kings. You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, 